Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, Episode 6. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. And you know, when I say it's a podcast about all things Metallica, what I mean is Metallica is the anchor. Metallica is one of, and in some cases, the central commonality between the guests. The conversations, you know, you get it. They wander, you know, wonderfully so. That's kind of the idea. That's been the idea from the beginning. And this conversation, which we're going to get to very quickly, is no exception. Our guest this episode is Mark Morton, guitarist for Lamb of God. This is a We talk about Garage Days, The Black Album, and Justice for All, production styles. We talk about Lamb of God performing on three continents, on multiple legs of the lengthy World Magnetic Tour. We talk about several other bands. Believe it or not, we even get into life and death and mystery. Mark is an incredible human being, effortlessly charming, immensely talented, somebody who, the more I get to talk to him, the more excited I get about talking to him again. Just one of those people. Uh, you know, it, it certainly doesn't hurt that we're about the same age and very similar life experiences in terms of our interests. And my old band, Burn It Down, actually played a show with Lamb of God. Uh, two shows, actually, Mark reminded me. Uh, one was a, a festival in Indianapolis, a hardcore fest. But the one I remember a little more vividly, uh, which is the one he doesn't really remember, is when we played with Lamb of God in Richmond, Virginia. And, our, you know, our, oh, gosh probably 17 years ago. Anyway, I'm just gonna, I just want to get right into this conversation because it's, an, it's incredible. This conversation gets heavy uh, in all, all imaginable ways. So strap in and get ready to listen to Mark Morton of Lamb of God. This is Speak and Destroy. <laughs> No one in my family are musicians um, that I'm aware of. Um, so it's, it's not like I had a parent that played an instrument or anything like that, but there was always music in the house. And um, I have an older brother. He's like eight years older than me. So when I was five or six, he was 13 or 14. And this would have been like 1977, 78, right? So, you know, the music he was listening to was coming out of the bedroom next to mine and, and, and you know, going into my ears. And it was... Van Halen and ACDC and Aerosmith and Leonard Skinner and the Cars and, you know, Tom Petty and, you know, all that great music. And um, so I just kind of, I just kind of was drawn to that. And I guess I bring that up because early in for, you know, I guess because of the, the, the music of the times and maybe my brother's good taste, I was being exposed to actually kind of really good good, hard, you know, hard rock music. And, uh, and Van Halen was a big part of that. And, you know, hearing, um, I remember hearing Eruption and thinking as a kid that it just, it sounded like 
Like in my mind, that's what like a spaceship sounded like. You know what I mean? Like I remember think, drawing that parallel. It sounds like it's from outer space. And just, you know, the idea that you, someone could do that, someone could make that sound with something they did, you know, it was just amazing to me because it sounded inhuman, you know? So, you know, there was a lot of music in the house. My parents listened to a lot of, like, um, you know, old kind of classic country country music and the radio hits of the day, you know, the Eagles and, and uh, Super Tramp and all that kind of stuff. There was always, you know, and that kind of stuff was in the background and I was just paying attention, you know, because I just, for whatever reason, we're, those of us that love music do, I was just drawn to it. I asked for a drum set when I was, like, six or seven and I got, like, a little, like, Sears, like, you know, pretend kind of drum set with the little rivets and the cymbals and all that. And I played that for a little bit. I definitely bashed on it, but it wasn't anything that like I became my passion. And then when I was like 12, I wanted a drum set again. You know, it's kind of second round at that because now I was into rock music. And my parents and my parents said that uh, uh, drums drums are too loud. You know, can you can you pick something else? Second choice was guitar. That was my second choice. Yeah, my my uh, my dad wouldn't let me get drums for the same reason. And then when I realized uh, singing in bands meant that all I had to do was show up, <laughs> I didn't have to buy yeah. any, buy anything or yeah. practice anything. I think that's when that happened. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was, my buddy Andy uh, Andy Blackville Brides Andy uh, the other day, and he was joking, obviously. So no offense to any drummers that are listening, but I was telling him that my four year old son was asking me about drums the other day and andy said don't worry we all we all want to play drums at first and then we realize <laughs> that the drummer does uh all of the work for none of the recognition and then we buy a guitar <laughs> it's like I, he, he has a very valid point <laughs> <laughs> the drummer's got to sit back there working the hardest and being being seen the least that, that that's why they're always standing up in between songs and throwing sticks at people because <laughs> it's like you know, yeah hey I'm working hard back here. Yeah, or in the case of like a Metallica, you know, doing a bunch of interviews and being like a the, the, the mouthpiece of a band, or well, in his case, Lars, you know, business guy and whatever. So, what you know, you mentioned Van Halen, uh, ACDC. What were some of the other kind of seminal, uh, formative bands for you, especially once you got a guitar and started started learning? You know, once I picked up the guitar, it was I was kind of fortunate in the timing of things because. You know, like I said, I was about 12, 13. And so we were just skateboarding. You know what I mean? Like this would have been, so this would have been 13, I guess, 85 or something like that. 85, 86. So we were getting into skateboarding. And with that came punk rock, right? So for me, punk rock came later there, early adolescence, because I'm from um, a small town in Southeast Virginia. It's suburban, but it's not really a suburb of anything. It's just, you know what I mean? Like a little town. Um, it's a college town. The College of William and Mary is, is there. And fortunately, William and Mary had 
a really hip college radio station that I could pick up at my house, right? So they were playing punk rock because they were college kids, and we were skateboarding and, and listening to the college station and also just getting on guitar. So my point in all that is punk rock is relatively simple to play. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I love punk music and, you know, um, but it's not like to typically considered a technical form of playing. Some bands are, but most of it's and not. Part, and part of that's the point is it was that much more accessible. I mean, singing punk rock is a lot easier than singing, you know, sure. pop music or virtuoso metal even, you know. And so if you learned the basic kind of, you know, bar chords or power chords, you could play along to the Sex Pistols album. You could play along to Circle Jerks record. You could, you know. So that was, I thought, just good timing because the music I was into happened to be simple to play and I was just picking up this instrument. And then I still had that background of like Van Halen and Aerosmith. It just, I just, as I, as guitar started taking over and becoming more important in my life, and that was pretty quick, I just literally went through play, like I would get into a player and just go through their music and, and try and understand what their style was. And I remember like being in, in a huge Jimi Hendrix phase, right? And then a huge Jimmy Page phase, and then which never ended. My daughter's middle name is Page. So would you welcome please Led Zeppelin. And then, you know, Tony Iommi and, you know, Billy Gibbons and just, all you know, just going through these like months, phases of just listening to the same player and trying to understand the differences and the nuances of style and of, of character and, of you know, personality on the instrument. I mean, I don't think in my mind at the time I was characterizing it as such, but that's what I was really doing, you know. And I guess because I have a knack for it, I got pretty good pretty quick you know so by the time i was 14 you know i was 14 and i looked like i was 12 and i'd be in the music store playing and, and people would stop and come and watch me play you know and then you know i start my we started our little bands all of you know me and my buddies that played and and uh, i was i remember my thing always being different because a lot of my friends weren't writing songs but for some reason the projects i were in we were we were, you know, the idea of creating original material was already on our radar. I mean, it wasn't good. It wasn't good at all. But we were, the process is something that we were now participating in, which was big. That's interesting because, you know, as somebody who inter who's interviewed a lot of musicians for a number of years, I tend to hear 99 times out of 100 early bands uh, are cover bands, you know, doing yeah. cover songs or, you know, even, even, even Metallica, their first few shows were like half diamond head songs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And we were playing covers as well, but we were also writing and um, we would pick covers too. I remember that. And I think I've heard Metallica talk about this too. You, you know, we would pick some cover songs that we knew no one would know. Like, like mm -hmm. we played two Circus of Power songs. I still to this day <laughs> love Circus of Power, right? Yes. Played, we played two Circus of Power songs, and, and, you know, more than half of the people that of our friends or little audience in town that came to see us, I think they were pretty sure they thought that that was our songs, you know, because no one knew who Circus of Power was. My older brother got me into Circus of Power. That was like a, an overlap that we had because he was, uh, he's five years older than me. He was never a metal dude, uh, but we had some, he was definitely into really cool music and got me into, you know, as I was a kid, it was... Adam and the Ants and Prince and yeah, um, yeah. you know Generation X and a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Lords of the New Church, uh, yeah. Hanoi Rocks. 
Um, that was all stuff from my older brother. We had some overlap later where there was some punk stuff that he liked and some, and uh, sometimes he got into like some of the kind of heavier grunge bands when that like early grunge. Um, but yeah, Circus of Power, that was a band that I was kind of like, I would see them in metal magazines and be like, are they, is this a thrash band? Are they like, what is this band? You know, That's the thing. Yeah, they, were, yeah. they, were, they weren't really metal. To me, it was kind of a precursor to the whole what, kind of white zombie thing. Yeah. Um, it had a little more of a blues, a little more of a developed blues kind of sound to it. They had a minute where they toured with Faith No More. Faith No More was touring, I think it was the real thing album, and Circus of Power was their main support on that tour. And I was real into Faith No More at the time, and I loved Circus of Power, so me and my buddies went to that show. And I remember seeing the rhythm guitar player, I still remember this, he was by the soundboard after their set. And he wasn't getting mobbed, no one knew who he was, but I did. And I walked up to him and I was like, hey man, my name's Mark, I play guitar, I have a band. We cover In the Wind and Call of the Wild, two of your songs, you know what I mean? And he's like... He's like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that's cool, man. You know, I was a kid. You know, he's like, that's yeah. really cool, man. Like, uh, I, I didn't really, it never occurred to me that people were going to be covering our stuff. But good luck to you. You know, he was cool. Oh man, yeah. I, I uh, <laughs> remember going up to. Uh, I wrote a uh, a letter to the Sacred Reich fan club. There was an address <laughs> inside the cassette in the first record. Yeah. And uh, I got this letter back from Phil Ryan that was on the back of like a really cool Sacred Reich flyer from Arizona that had like their mascot guy, somebody had drawn it really awesome, awesomely. And then on the back, he had written me this letter back and I was so psyched, you know, and it's like, I felt, you know, I'm like this 14 year old kid in Indiana. I felt like Phil Rind from Sacred Reich was my friend. So I, I, I approached him at the show in Indianapolis. I was like, hey man, like, hey, you wrote me this letter. Like, you know, like he'd know who I was or something. And he was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. And then he goes, uh, and he was talking to somebody and he goes, listen, man, I gotta go take a shit. So I was like, all right. And I kind of wandered off and he didn't move. He stood there with the same dude he had been with. So oh, wow. years later, I somehow ended, was telling this story to Gloria Cavalera. She uh, worked with Sacred Rock and you know, she's from Arizona and, and was part of that whole thing way back then. And I told her that story and she goes, well, I hate to break it to you, but um, I probably wrote you that letter from Phil. <laughs> she's like, I answered a lot of the fan mail as Phil. I don't know that dude. He's. Pro I'm sure he's cool. I don't. I don't know him either. But I was. I, I was a fan. I mean, of, yeah. of the band. Funny, what stuck out to me as you were telling that story was you were like, I got a letter from Arizona. It's interesting because in that time frame, in that era, there was like, was, that was exotic to you. 
Yes. And there was there was a culture associated with that. It was a scene. Like I knew at the same time, you, you and I are about the same age. I knew at the same time that Arizona, that's where Sacred Rites from. Yeah. That's where Flotsam and Jetsam's from. Atrophy. That's where that, that that's where that place the, the, the Masons are or whatever, the, you know, the club, like it, all those things you, you knew and you associated with the scene. Punk rock was kinda like that too. There later there was the whole like Chicago touch and go thing and the Minneapolis thing and the Seattle um sub pop thing and you know, all different scenes going on. But metal had that kind of cultural regional identity as well i mean everyone talks about bay area thrash and that's huge but even you know you talk about arizona or stuff going on in new york florida you know there were pockets and and texas you know there were just things going on that were sort of regional all under the umbrella of that but at that time before computers or you know before the internet and before file sharing and all that there was like there was a regional identity and you yeah. You group these bands together, not even more so by where they actually practice and live than what they necessarily sound again, sounded, sounded like or similarities in their style. Yeah, it's like little they were like little mini ecosystems. And that's a really good point that I don't I, I don't haven't thought about uh, very much is that, yeah, you would tend to group a lot of bands together based regionally and sort of with the relationships between the, the friend groups and stuff that didn't sound anything alike. Cause in, in, you know, growing up in Indianapolis, we had sloppy seconds and the zero boys and toxic reasons, kind of the elder statesman punk bands that had some kind of recognition outside of the state. And then we had transgression who was like a crossover band. Uh, we had a band called drop dead, not to be confused with the drop dead. Everybody knows who were a thrash band that was like the local opener on every thrash show that came through. And, yeah. and, it, and as a 14, 15 year old kid, I didn't differentiate or distinguish those bands from international bands that I was listening to and supporting, you know, as far as I was concerned, the zero boys and transgression and drop dead were just as big of a deal as, you yeah. know, DRI and Exodus, you know, and, uh, well, but it, it, it held a similar space in your life. You know what I mean? It was, yeah. like it was they were, they were as important to you, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and I, yeah. I, I, I remember when Dead Horse was as, every bit as important to me as Pantera was. You know yes. what I mean? Like, it, yes. it, it, just, it, it was. And that didn't feel weird to me at all. I loved Dead Horse. I loved that band. Yeah. I still do. <laughs> they used to come to India a lot. Them and uh, I don't know if you remember band uh, F-U-C-T. But they were like kind of a Voivod uh -oh. sort of band. Um, yeah. I remember them come, coming to Indy with Dead Horse a couple times. Yeah, that's a great point, man, about that sort of that regional identity. And, and uh, yeah, it was definitely exotic getting a letter from someone, not only in a band that I liked, but from a whole other scene that I was following and, and aware of. Um, and, and then, yeah. It was like a, l a little piece of that planet, you know? What yeah. I mean? that, that, yeah. That, that, that was special. That was cool. Absolutely. So what was your you know, crossing over sort of, no pun intended, from the punk scene and, and those kind of bands and playing that sort of stuff. Where did the heavier and the more sort of complex kind of metal stuff enter the picture? Yeah, it, it was kind of going on simultaneously. Like, I remember, you know, listening to, to certain punk bands at the same time that I was discovering. Like, I was never like a punk rock kid. I just was skating with my friends playing guitar and we were listening to the Sex Pistols and we'd listen to Van Halen too or we'd, you know, whatever. And I remember hearing, I guess, the first Metallica album I ever heard was Ride the, uh, I don't know, it was either Ride the Lightning. My friend also had the, um, he actually had the cassette, the, the EP. I guess it's No Life to Leather, right? Was that released by um, Megaforce? 
No, no, let's he, one... was... he, he might have had uh, Jump in the Fire or Creeping Death. That's what it was. It yeah. was Jump in the Fire. They were like, the they fire. were like yeah. sing, cassette single EP kind of. Yeah, but yeah. it was definitely a, a label produced thing. Yeah. And, you know, it was yeah. a distributed It's thing. probably Jump in the Fire. Um, yeah, I think it was. So I heard kind of that and, and probably Ride the Lightning sort of around the same time, even though they're obviously released at different times. That's when they, they both kind of presented to me. And I heard, uh, I guess shortly after that, I heard Megadeth. And so really it was Metallica, Megadeth, and then shortly after that, Slayer and Testament. And this would have been maybe two years after that initial, like getting the guitar, you know, two or three years. And it, it just kind of, like I said, when, the, when I started with the punk thing, playing the simple stuff on the guitar because I wasn't very good, and then I got a little bit better, and as I got better, I also just happened to be discovering these bands that were like, to me, Megadeth had a real, like, real punk feel about it, especially those first, those first two albums. Like, they were loose. Um, timing was all over the place. It was chaotic, but it was also very technical. And so I, I liked that. I liked the fact that the, it still had this energy and this kind of raw, like, like pure energy um, about it, but also that I could tell that they were really ripping, like they were really playing like cool stuff on their instrument. They were, they were going for it. And so I, I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's funny how you talk about bands that were like sort of regional, but you felt just as, as into them as some of the more national acts. To me, like, I didn't necessarily differentiate, differentiate between I'm trying to think of an example of even really like, like Voivod and Megadeth or, you know, like trying to think of a punk band I would have been listening to. Cause I mean, a lot of the punk I was listening to was more of that sort of the West coast, like, you know, circle jerks and, and JFA and that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I just wasn't, I guess what I'm trying to say is I wasn't as concerned with genre. And, and I think yeah. back then it, it wasn't as important to put things into a box, you know, there didn't have to be a distinction between like a punk band and a metal band. And, uh, you know, and we would all still be listening to black Sabbath as well. And it wasn't like, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a conversation. A lot of the shows were like that too. It's funny. We, we, we both mentioned Voivod and you mentioned faith no more. Um, and I always reference this tour, even though I, I missed it as a kid, I remember it coming through town. There was a tour that was Voivod faith, no more and Soundgarden. And, and mm -hmm. it was like Soundgarden was first of three, Faith No More main support and Voivod was headlining. Um, but if you think about even just the disparity in, uh, in styles amongst those bands, but it wasn't weird at the time. I mean, it's like, I don't remember hearing mm -hmm. about that tour and being like, why are those bands touring together? They're totally different. <laughs> yeah, like, right. It all right. seemed like it was kind of the same scene. You know, you mentioned the, uh, the punk thing in Megadeth. Uh, I actually discovered the Dead Kennedys. You know, a lot, a lot of us talk about obviously Metallica introducing a lot of people to the Misfits and Sam Hain and Danzig. Mm -hmm. um, I discovered the Dead Kennedys because David Ellison had a Dead Kennedy sticker on his base. Um, and I used to, you know, I had a picture of, of him on my wall as a kid playing this, you know, this like turquoise bass or something with, uh, yeah. with uh, a Dead Kennedy sticker. And I was like, what's the Dead Kennedys? I think Jeff Hanneman used to rock DK stickers on yeah. his guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know what, the other thing you mentioned about the style of those first two Megadeth records, I don't think I appreciated until fully, fully appreciated until adulthood. What a magnificent, magical, beastly animal Gar Samuelson was. Yeah. Um, because, man, you know, I think it was maybe 2001 or two when that remix Killing Is My Business came out. 
you know, and there's been hit, hits and misses with uh, various remixing and remastering of not only Megadeth records, but a lot of bands. But that remix, remastered Killing My Killings My Business sounds incredible. And one of the things that really brought to life for me was Gar's just jazzy, insane. Yeah, super, like, unique style, you know? Yeah. And, and especially on the first album, on Killing Us, yeah, especially on yeah. Killing Us, My Business album. It's just like, it's like, those songs are just, they feel like, you know, someone's learning how to how to drive a stick shift, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or like, you know, a box rolling down the stairs, like, you know, it's yeah. like, but that's, it's, it's cool, you know, it's so, so much character. And you, and you, and you, and you really get a feel for, because you hear a lot about Gar being a jazz guy and, and, you know, the, you know, Mustaine de described him as like a praying mantis or whatever. And you can hear that where it's got this beauty of like, it sounds like a guy who's not a metal guy helping invent one of the most like, you know, one of the modern metal sounds, you know what I mean? Like, it's just sort of like, yeah. I feel like wherever he came from probably helped with what we're trying to describe here because it, because he was just had a different perspective just, on it all. Just wake up, wake up dead alone is enough for me. That's just that, that song is goddamn perfect. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, so you mentioned uh, Ride the Lightning and, and uh, some of those Kill 'Em All related EPs. That I mean, that's early, you know. My my, uh, this is always funny to me in retrospect. But the current Metallica release when I discovered the band was the Garage Days EP <laughs> that had like yeah. just come out. But that was a big deal when that came out, and I loved that that album release, whatever you want to call it, EP. Um, when that came out, like I was excited about it it was a big deal we were going to get it and we listened to it and we loved it you know and it was it's funny to think now of, you know i i guess it's it's sort of was is is historically catalog is just like a small sign of side release or whatever yeah. it was and that was the first with with jason right yeah like, yeah that was the the introduction of of the you know so and it was yeah i get i guess in the business we'd call that a stopgap release now yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah like, i mean much like we're talking about all these different bands we didn't distinguish between releases either I, I didn't see the garage days ep as any more or less worthy than any other album yeah it, it, it didn't have a it didn't have any less significance and, and it was cool i liked i actually liked it I yeah it. i like this i like the sound of it too i like the uh you know the stuff that they would call the not produced by metallica stuff like whatever whatever yeah. they whatever they did to get that you know, because it was still clear and... Mm -hmm. 
no foreshadowing of what was about to come with the justice thing, which was like, right. like sound wise, you know, so like, like not much you'd heard. I remember the prong beg to differ. I, I remember putting those two next to each other, like prong beg to differ and, uh, and Metallica and justice for all. Like to me, it was like, they sound the same to me for some reason, you know, like, they sound they sound very sort of uh and this is obviously way 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 before like fear factory and stuff like this so i don't mean it in that way but they sound really mechanical and really sort of like cold and uh just the mix on them too like the, yeah. i guess the way that the, the, the way the drums like sounded like unnaturally mixed you know like, yeah wasn't a bum out like i i loved justice and i thought it was cool that it sounded it, it almost at it for a time i remember thinking it sounded like almost futuristic like it was yes. so different than all the stuff i was listening like, like to like machine like is this, like, is this yeah. modern are we in the future modern metal now like this is crazy i don't have anything else in my collection that sounds like this like totally master puppets ride the lightning they, they were good sounding records but they still sounded like a heavy rock record you know what i mean yeah and, and warm and analogy and and, and, and it's yeah, and it's super. crazy because and justice for all sounds like what we would now identify as like a super pro tooled you know this or that or whatever but but i mean somebody was sitting there cutting analog tape with an exacto knife right like making absolutely. those drums absolutely yeah <laughs> and that's that in and of itself is insane to think about you know i don't know if if sound wise if it holds if it holds up over time you know what i mean i don't yeah. think it's you know but I will say, at the time, it sounded really fresh and really exciting. Like the actual one of the first albums too. That as a as a young player and a kid in bands, and that was trying to write my own songs. Was one of the first albums when I really started to notice production. Like, okay, mm. they did something in the studio that makes this sound different than almost any other record I have. And how'd they do that? What are they doing? Like that was kind of what got me thinking about that. Like I said, over time, I think it it. It's it's kind of a, an anomaly, and and they were they were also about to make the best sounding metal record in history, or at least at that point, what was you know? Yeah. But it was uh it was it was definitely a cool sounding record, and and I think maybe people that weren't around at the time don't realize that it was like noticeably different than anything else that was happening. Yeah, and it's funny uh, what you mentioned that about the Black Album because how many times, and, and obviously this is also in terms of success and stripped down songwriting and so on, But how, and maybe this is the journalist in me, but how many times has a band told me that they want to make their Black Album or that they're about to <laughs> yeah, make their right? Black Album or that they're... But that's the, you know, you know it, it's the touchstone. Like, it's, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the landmark, you know. It, it's funny, I was... Uh, I got I spent a little time in the studio with the Black Veil guys when they were working with Bob Rock and CC their drummer was telling me uh you know some of his early conversations with Bob Rock about tone and kind of what he wanted to go for as a drummer and this and that 
you know, and this is and this is a very common like producer musician conversation, right? Bob Rock's like, sure. like, hey, what are some references? You know, what are what are? Can you tell me some records where you really like the drum tone and you know, snare and kick and whatever? And and CC was just like, uh, the Black Album. just like, yeah, right. like that'll work <laughs> like just yeah. whatever you did, whatever you, you did there <laughs> yeah. yeah we'll just we'll just take that treatment right you did do that one right yeah uh, um so that is, it is, yeah it is that touchstone in so many ways I'm, I'm sure you i'm sure you probably heard this but there's a a bunch of fan if you if you go down the youtube wormhole there there's a bunch of like and justice for jason yeah Yeah, yeah, the and justice for Jason thing, where uh, sometimes even uh, some of them people have like recorded just bass tracks and mixed it in. Um, I feel like the the ones that I've heard, they're kind of overcompensating though, where it's like, all right, yeah. man, like now it sounds like Flea is playing on Injustice for All. Like, right. this is a little too much bass. So I, I gotta ask you, uh, since I have you, Lamb of God uh, got the tour with Metallica, and this was a conversation that I had on on the podcast also with Matt from Avenged Sevenfold. So I'll ask you the same question I asked him. What was your first knowledge that there was like, like, like that there was an acknowledgement from Metallica that they knew who Lamb of God was, that they, mm. that there was, yeah, you were on their radar. We played a show in New York and I'm not good with years. I, I don't know when this might, it might've been 2010, maybe I'm just mm. taking a kind of a guess. I don't know. Do you know when we toured with Metallica, what year it was? It was on, it was Death Magnetic, right? Yeah. So it, it probably was like 2008 or 2009, actually, when you toured with them. Okay. So, wow, that was long ago. But anyway, before we toured with them, um, we played a show at at uh, at Roseland in New York. Fall fall 2009, that was when you toured with Metallica. Okay. So, that, so I guess sometime in 2008, we played a show at Roseland in New York, and Kirk shows up and robert kirk and robert both show up to the show and there's this big stink you know i mean people are talking talking about it before they were there saying hey kirk and robert are coming out was this was and, this lamb of god fear factory throwdown mm, i don't think so because I, I, I remember because I, I came i came to roseland for lamb of god fear factory throwdown during that tour and i seem to remember metal maria had brought kirk to the show but i want to say but i want to say that was a lot earlier even though because that tour was like 2004 or 5 or something like gosh that. yeah 
I don't know. I'm 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 bad with the years, man. Especially when they get more than a couple of few back. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm, I'm not I'm not much better. So. <laughs> so somewhere in there. <laughs> but somewhere somewhere before we toured with Metallica, Kirk and Robert came out to a show, and we were playing at Roseland in New York with somebody. I can't remember who, but um, they came out and and. That's when, you know, it was like, wow, they, yeah, cool. Guys in Metallica dig our band. That's nuts. That's awesome, you know? And I remember Kirk being backstage and him and I meeting and we're talking and and he was like talking to me about parts of songs. Like he said something mm. to me about, about now you've got something to die for. And, and, and I'm just playing it cool. Yeah, well, blah, blah, blah. And in my head, I'm like, damn, he really knows our songs, you know? Yeah. Or at least one of them. So, <laughs> so that's when it became... You know, we were like, wow, we got, you know, Metallica dudes are banned. But then I don't remember how it came up. It, I mean, knowing what I know about the business, it probably came to, we were made aware of it through our management or through our booking agent that, hey, Metallica's doing a tour and they're looking at you guys, you know. And it's like, okay, what do you want us to do? Yeah. Sit still and don't say anything stupid. And, uh, you know. And then we got. That's, the, that's one of those tours where you're like, "Cool, how much? How much do we have to pay them every night?" <laughs> right. And, and, <laughs> but then we got the offer, and and it was, um, you know, we don't get into business, but it was sure. really fair the way they treated us. It was yeah. very, very fair. And um, you know, obviously, not to sound like the cliche interview or or you know, headline or whatever. It was a huge honor to even be there, to even be asked to play with them. Um, and you know, those shows, those shows, and I'm sure they still do this. The still the same now their shows sell out before they even announce who support is. So the fact that they have support, they don't need a support band. They're just doing it to keep themselves entertained and to Mm -hmm. to make sure the fans have a good night, long night. You know, they don't need, they don't need a support band to sell a single ticket. They sell out everywhere they go. Right. Yeah. and 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 I feel like they, um, they do it also to kind of, and yeah, they have a great reputation for for treating bands really well. Um, but I feel like they do it to also kind of pay it forward. And you know, when you think about like Metallica touring with Ozzy on Master of Puppets and how much that did for them, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I feel this is my sense anyway. Maybe I'm being a romantic fan. No, I but think I, you're I feel right. Like they want to help build, you know, future headliners. You know, you can see it with the time they spent with the sword. They, they had the sword with them for a long time, and you can see it with the time they spent with Gojira. Like they kind of take them under their wing and, and nurture these great bands that are just haven't really broken yet, you know, um, yeah. you know, on a, on a, on a massive commercial level. So yeah, they care. And, and that was the thing. Like once I got out there and we did, um, you know, we did a three continents with them. I think we were on, we were on and off with them for over a year. So when I got out there, it was like cool to see that they were really real, genuine people like they were they were sometimes i've been around um very famous people and and you know some people that are very famous act like they're very famous mm-hmm. you know and and they sort of put off this air like they're unapproachable and these guys aren't like that at all they're they're normal dudes and and you know it was it was it was nice to it was nice to find that out you know what i mean that that they were they were cool cats and they were they were just in a great band that did really well but they were, they were easy to hang out with easy to talk to you know what i found in my experience is that the higher the f- up the food chain so to speak a public figure is 
the more kind of self-assured and comfortable in their own skin they are. And so the cooler they are. And I, and I think kind of psychologically it's because they don't have anything to prove to you, you know, and I've, you know, as someone who, you know, I cover movies a lot and, uh, you know, people are like, Oh, what, you know, somebody like Ben Affleck or something like, is that guy a dick? And it's like, no, he's the coolest dude in the world yeah. when you walk in the room. And I feel like that's because when I'm walking in the room, he doesn't have shit to prove to me. You know, it's more sort of that B and C level that tend to, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. th th that, uh, want you to know that there's somebody, you know, uh, I, I remember I, I worked on this show for, uh, Marvel a couple of years ago. Um, it was like a, a talk show thing that I wrote for them and there were a bunch of guests that came through and here we have like method man and a bunch of these comedians like Ron Funches and Paul F Tompkins and Clark Gregg from the Marvel movies. Every one of these people I just named came to the set by themselves. Uh, you know, I think method man Ubered, you know, Clark, Clark <laughs> Gregg showed up in like a mini Cooper. The one person who brought an entourage and made a big deal about his arrival was this 20 year old kid who was famous on vine. It's wow. just like, th there it is in a nutshell. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like Me Method Man's hopping in the Uber and showing up by himself and just and hanging yeah. out, taking pictures with everybody on the set. And uh, the, the, yeah, the unapproachable uh, famous person was the Vine star. Well, yeah. it's good. Uh, it's good. He better get it in. You know what I mean? Like, get, it, get it in while <laughs> Exactly. Probably, exactly. probably not going to have a link, lengthy stay. Exactly. Uh, anything stand out to you in particular about, I mean, I know touring can even a great tour like that can become uh, other than the time you're on stage, of course, uh, it can become a drag, you know, monotonous and, and yeah, samey. Yeah. Any, any, anything in particular kind of stand out when you think back on that Metallica run as like a extra cool experience. I, I actually, I, well, I think about that time a lot because um, it was just a big, it was a big moment in our career. In my personal life, there was, crazy stuff going on like some really good and some horribly tragic so i was just on this kind of roller coaster ride um during that 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 per period of my life um i think for us as a band it was interesting because it 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 tested our ability to adapt um and we had already at that point been in arenas and you know with slipknot and maybe a time or two on a festival the arena festival kind of thing um so we were we were cool doing that, but um, Metallica was in the round. It was this this stage in the middle of the the floor with people all around you, and and it was really foreign for us, or it probably would be for most fans, to come in there and and have to instead of now working one one side of the stage, you're working four sides of the stage, and um, you know we, we, it just down to like where the hell do you put the drums? <laughs> right. How do you set the monitors up and, and like, what yeah. am I, what am I trying to listen to? And then do we rotate? or was this volleyball? Are we going to rotate every song? Like, what are we, what <laughs> that's are we what doing? I was about to say is how do you, how do you make sure that you don't have like three guys all standing on the same side at the same time? Or do you want it that way? Or do you want to, that's yeah. it. And, and <laughs> so we had to, we had to, you know, learn cause you know, performing is a skill. You know there are bad performers. Good, there are good performances and bad performances, and there are some people that are natural performers and some people that aren't. And sometimes those people are in bands together. Um, and <laughs> sure. you, you know what I mean. But yeah. it's uh, you know, fortunately, our our frontman, singer, vocalist, whatever you want to call him, is a phenomenal performer. Um, he is amazing at that and other things too. But he's amazing at that. 
And so that helped us kind of adapt because while we were, you know, figuring out where to put the drum kit and how to stand somewhere where you can he we can hear your guitar and hear Chris's drums at the same time, Randy's running around in circles, you know, keeping it moving. And, and you know, we got into a groove. It took, it took a couple of weeks probably. Those, those early shows were probably pretty stiff. Um, I remember one going over particularly well. We played, it was like the second or third night of the tour we played in Vancouver. And uh, we got a really good response. And it's either Seattle or Vancouver. I think it was Vancouver. And, and Lars actually came in. He was like, wow, they love you here. We were like, yeah, we do pretty good here. You know, he was like, cool. <laughs> you know, he was That's like, awesome. I, heard, I, I heard that from my dressing room. I was like, cool. So I think as a band, like, it, it was really good for us to have that challenge and to, um, you know, to, to, we had to work for it a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, we got the spot, and it was, it was a cool um, more than a cool, it was a great opportunity, but we had to work a little bit for that. And we did, and we did pretty, we did pretty well. And I think, um, for me on a personal level, it, it was, it was, there was so much going on, um, and on, in my, in my life that was, um, like I said, amazing moments and horrible tragedies all kind of rolled into the same, you know, six month year period. And, um, I had to miss a few dates on that on those tours um, just to to deal with some family stuff and some personal issues, and so I was kind of a couple times coming in and out of that, and it was hard for me dealing with a, a major tragedy, and then coming back into that fold where everyone's having the time of their lives and performing, and I'm kind of recovering from this horrible tragedy in my personal life, and I'm having to like figure out how to still be cool with that environment and grieve what I'm grieving, you know? So, I mean, that's all, you know, life, life happens to everybody. And, um, but that's, that's how, that's how I look back on that period was, uh, it was just high highs and low lows and just really chaotic, but after the band, incredible opportunity. And what, and, and yeah, and what a perfect snapshot of the whole experience of life. If you really get down to it, to, you know, have, one of your biggest triumphs in your career and, and as an art creative artist and to ha and then to also be experiencing the worst thing that I think anyone can go through yeah. um, simultaneously. Like I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that it overlapped like that too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's like a, you know, it, it's like if you saw that in the movie, you might be like, that seems fake, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. how, how is that at the same time? Man. Yeah. That's wild. And, uh, and yeah, I can only imagine the, the sort of psychological and spiritual, uh, atmosphere, like you said, of, um, coming back into the mix where everyone's got that momentum going of, of living it up and you're sort of like, Hey, I'm back. Um, it's a testament to your own resolve and, and perseverance that you even made it out there at all. You know, I mean, I made it out there, and, uh, but you know, I, I, <laughs> You know, I, I didn't always process it properly, you know what I mean? And and sometimes I wonder if that's because I was jumping out onto the road um, too, too quickly. Uh, but I, um, I, I was going to say this, this kind of, it's kind of like an extreme example of what so many people that do what we do as performers, as tour musicians deal with, because um, your life is going to happen no matter what you do, whether you're the president of the United States, whether you're a, Dale Earnhardt Jr. or whether you're a big rock star or whatever, there's going to be things in your personal life and people are, people are going to die. 
people are going to get hurt. People are going to get sick. People you love are going to have bad things happen to them. And yet you still have to work. You still have commitments. You still have your bandmates and a lot of people, depending on you, go out and do your job. And so you have to find a way to still do basically, excuse me, still entertain people while kind of processing whatever, you know, tragedy or grief or conflict or what you have in your own life. And that's, man, that can be tough. I've seen some pretty extreme situations in my life where I've had to do that. Um, but I'm not the only one, you know, and even on a small level, sometimes it's, that's why when you see people have a bad show or somebody's, you know, the singer for your favorite band's grumpy or he didn't come out and take your picture or whatever, you don't know what that dude or that, that woman has going on in their life. You, you know what I mean? It's like, sometimes it's pretty tough to be out there entertaining when you've got something really, really, uh, really, really bad going on. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the best thing in the world because life's good and you've got, you know, you got a great job and people love your music and that's cool too. But I'm just saying like, it, the show doesn't stop. You know what I mean? Yeah. The show always goes on no matter what's happening. And that's true for, for life and, and any career. And, and yeah, and kind of bringing us full circle with the uh, Metallica theme of this, of Speak and Destroy. Yeah, I mean, Metallica is the ultimate example of that uh, right way or wrong way, however you view it. Um, you know, Cliff Burton passed away, I think, in September of 86. And they were in Japan with Jason Newstead, you know, before the year was over. Yeah. You know, I mean, just like, they, you know, they were auditioning basis and picking back up, you know, touring the same record even. Um, and, and yeah. you know, and they've talked since about kind of the way they processed or didn't process and how many years later even that it kind of came through. So... Yeah, we all have uh, different ways of doing that, and I'm a big believer that there's there's no right way or wrong way. You know, there's there's you just do it. <laughs> you know, you just yeah, you just gotta you just gotta push through because it's it's all part of it, man. It's all part of uh, this journey we're on. You know, well, on on this on the subject of, of tragedy and loss, uh, it was it was making the rounds online uh, just a couple months ago that you'd spent some time with Chester Bennington, um, you know, working on something with him and, and Josh Wilbur and hanging out. Uh, what can you tell me about your friendship with him? And, and I, I never met him or interviewed him or anything. Um, everyone I know who had any kind of experience with him always talked about what a, what a great guy he was and how cool he was and, and giving and kind and, and that sort of thing. Um, obviously that was a, a huge blow to the rock community and everyone affected by him in his life. I didn't know Chester very well, but I, I, I had worked with him and, and I didn't know him a little bit through that. Um, and I had the opportunity um, to work on some music with him, you know, and in, in that experience, it was interesting because we didn't really, really know each other very well. We had a mutual respect. Um, and to have the opportunity to work on a creative project with him, um, it takes it. It takes a certain amount of like trust you have to sort of have with somebody to get actually get creative and, and to and to really if you're really doing it and you're really putting yourself into it, you've got to trust that that other person's not going to turn on you or that they're not going to you know what I mean. Like you have to feel safe, I guess. And um, it was I found for me it was very easy to feel that way with him and to really just dig into. Um, the process of trying to make something cool happen creatively um, because he was just so open and so honest and so clearly, clearly excited about music. 
Um, and just just a really good dude, man. Just a, a, an easy person to be around. And um, I feel really fortunate to have had the chance to spend some time with him and to um, talk about music and talk about parenthood and talk about, you know, so many of the things that surround the music industry. And uh, it, it was a really it was a really special moment for me. And I'm, I'm glad I got to have it. As a testament to what you were talking about a moment ago that I think is important for all of us to keep in mind, especially those of us in the metal and rock community, you never know what somebody's going through. <laughs> you know, you really never know what, what uh, somebody's dealing with behind the scenes. And I think that's a, that's a lesson for all of us to try to make sure that we're kind and empathetic and, and you know, it, <laughs> it's, it's hard to talk about metal, about being sensitive to someone's needs, yeah, you know, well, but it's like, you're talking about real people, man, with, yeah. with real lives. And, you know, just like I was alluding to earlier in our conversation, like, you know, there's some things that happen happens in our lives that are in our lifetimes that you just, we want to understand things. We want to say, we know the reason something happened or say, we know, you know, some things just don't ever make sense. You just can't wrap your head around it. And, you know, I guess I've learned through a few things that have happened in my life just to be like, you know, some things just aren't going to make sense. It's not going to, it's never going to add up. So I'm not going to, I can't sit around here trying to figure out why. And, and I just, I, I won't, I don't know. You know? Yeah. And, and, and something that I've come around to much more recently, just in the last few years. And if this helps at all, that'd be amazing. But there's something about the the mystery itself. I, I, I've been trying to learn to embrace that much more of the mystery after spending so many years of my life trying to have answers and, and make sense of, of bigger things in life. Um, there's a big element of just the mystery. Like there's just like, like you said, there's things we'll never know and never understand in our lifetime and yeah. to kind of embrace that and charge into it rather than run from it or be afraid of it. Um, that's that's turned a big corner for me just in the last couple of years and and that even uh having conversations about it <laughs> it's not, you know what yeah. i mean it's like a big it, it, it it's helped a lot it's helped to make uh experiencing some of life's traumas uh you know to make some sense of them in that sort of way and also even just seeing how those really fundamental aspects of the human experience the connections that you end up uh, drawing to people, you know, I had, my mom passed away when I was 11, which was uh, obviously uh, it's an understatement to say it was a, a life. And, and I had no, I had no concept of this at the time. And for many years later, but what a defining thing it was in life, you know, in, in terms of my, how it would inform my relationships, both like romantically and friends and bandmates and whatever, you know what I mean? Like going, going on in life, but, and, 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 no one ever looks at an experience like that and says, oh, I'm glad that happened. That worked out. No. But there are many things in my life that have been phenomenal and, and, and wonderful and awesome that were definitely informed and shaped in some way by having experienced some type of tragedy like that. You know, whether it's relationships I forged with people who've been through similar types of things or, um, you know, as a parent, um, being that much more cognizant of... Uh, trying to be present and aware for my kids and knowing how much the time we spend with our kids, how, how important that is for them, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also, also how, how temporary yes. everything is like, that's, yes. I've, I've kind of been doing some reading, um, kind of 
different from different angles, but about just like kind of Buddhist philosophy. And there's this concept of like impermanence, like, mm. and and it it's it's a such it's a simple kind of concept, but it's we forget, like we think happiness or or fulfillment or or sanctity or whatever is like this destination that you, once you cross the line and break through the break through the ribbon, you're there and you finally arrived. It's not what it is. Like it's it's a moment to be sure acknowledged and to be savored and to be enjoyed or whatever when you're happy or when something great happens. But know that it's it's when you create suffering is when you try and hang on and clench onto that moment and keep it and hold it. You know, and it's the same thing with with tragedies. I mean, obviously. Your, your mother dying and me losing a child and, and that those are horrible, horrible things. And, and you, you can't just write them off and say, well, it'll fade away. But at the same time, with time in between the, those events, like positive things happen in between them, you know, between now and when that happened too. And it's sort of, it's, it's all impermanent, like everything, you know, all of it is. And I don't know if that's too hippy dippy or whatever, but that's, when I remind myself of that, it helps me more appreciate the good things that are happening because I'm reminded that this is going to change, but man, right now, this is awesome, you know? And when I'm going through hell and I have a few times, I once again can remind myself the only thing that's for certain is this will change, you know? So, yeah, I know it's a cliche, but I love that, that, uh, idiom, you know, uh, if you're going through hell, keep going, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah. yeah. Um, which we could, we could bring a, a bring a Lamb of God song into this. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Take out of my hand, no longer Walk with me yeah, I mean, I, I love that too, and I, I've, I've been getting really in tune with with that sort of attitude that you're talking about, um, because I think that that's where there's a big failing, oftentimes in some more western systems of philosophy and religion and things where there's an expectation you know whether it's becoming born again being filled with the spirit or whatever that you'll cross some threshold like you said and be like you've, you've arrived like here you are you're in the you're in the end zone you made it you yeah scored, you know? and i think people get really discouraged when they and this isn't even a, a slam against christianity necessarily because i think that there's an understanding of christianity that's that's when you live in it as a process and as a mystery and when you understand this idea like you're talking about of that things are temporary um that, that those are that's a system that can still work for someone but yeah where i think a lot of people get discouraged and fall away from whether it's um some kind of lifestyle ethos or political party or or revolutionary group or whatever you know is when you think like okay this is the thing and now i have yeah. the, you know and then you realize it's not. You realize yeah. that you this still... is this is the thing that's going to make the difference. This is where I'm, yeah. I'm finally get. And people do it with money too. If if I only yeah. had yeah. this much money, then I'd be happy. Or if I mm -hmm. only, you know, lived in this city, then I'd be happy. If I only had this car, then I'd be happy. If I had that girl, if I had that girl, I'd be happy. Like that's not it, man. If, if I if I if I only weighed this certain amount. You know, yeah, if I sure. was if yeah. I was skinnier, if I was more muscular, if I was, I was you know, if I was prettier, if I, I was younger, yeah, you know. if I was taller, if I was shorter, if I was, you know, yeah, yeah. it's not where it's at, man. No, um, and it's yeah, and I think that man, exactly like you said, kind of appreciating those moments. Um, and that's not an excuse to say fuck it. Like that doesn't mean that I 
probably need to lose a few pounds. Right, exactly. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it just it just means it just means that uh I don't I can't expect for that to be the solution to my problems. If if I lose twenty pounds next year, I'm I'm not don't expect to be necessarily any happier. Probably just a, a just a tiny bit healthier, maybe. Yeah, so, <laughs> some some inc- some incremental growth and change, but uh, but, uh, some, but yeah, but understanding there's no positive fix. positive changes in momentum. Yeah, um, are good things and are, are is positive energy, no matter what sphere of activity it, it is in. But I just you know back to really what we're talking about is this idea that you kind of you know you know hit the you know score the goal or, or across mm-hmm. across the across the finish line is what i'm trying to say you know like yeah i'm constantly trying to re- remind myself that um that's that's flawed that's that's a yeah. flawed strategy because that's not how it's going to work and that we're and that there's also a beauty in being a, a, the totality of a, of a human being you know where it's like i've seen people go through different religious conversions of all sorts of different faiths um and i've experienced some of this on my in my own life too where yeah, you think like, okay, now I've got this thing, so I'm going to like wear sweaters and be nice and never curse anymore and, you know, show love to everybody all the time. Or, you know, people that have become like monks, you know, like, uh, yeah, they're I mean... like, oh, I'm not, I'm going to work. I'm not going to lust after the opposite sex anymore. And it's like, no, no, like you're, you're only going to, you're only setting yourself up to fail because one day you're going to wake up and realize, all, you know, anger and resentment and jealousy and greed and lust and all those things are still in you. Oh. And that's where sometimes people, you know, sometimes like the most militant of straight edge dudes that end up like strung out on heroin, <laughs> you know, a lot of that is yeah. because it was so like trying to white knuckle and grit your teeth through something. And then just you snap and you're like, fuck it, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, Total opposite direction. somewhere in there is realizing that it's all, it's all in you and it's all part of it and, and managing all those things. And incrementally getting better moment to moment is well i mean you you know we were both you were young in the 90s i was too you know how many people were you know going vegan and 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 you know going turning into Hare krishnas or or converting to islam or whatever and all this stuff you know because that's the solution that's the fix that's what's going to make me you know that's what's going to make me finally work and finally be okay with myself. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and even people that, have, that that ended up staying involved in any of those things that you mentioned are people that found some sense of moderation in there. You know, I've, I've, I have a friend who's been a, a Muslim now since I think yeah, 1999, not, that, that, but he's like, that's but, no but, knock on Islam. No, 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 not at all. I know exactly what you mean, but, but it's like my, my friends who got into those things, veganism, whatever, that were super militant and extreme about them. The ones who were still into those and didn't completely fall away are the ones who found like a mellower path within yes. it, you know, like, yes. um, you know, and it reminds me of like Christian kids that would go through this conversion moment and sell their record collection. And then like two or three years later, they're still a Christian, but they're like, man, I'd really like to get that Nine Inch Nails record back. (laughs) You know, but you see them like kind of like, all right, like they're like, you know, the fire's like quelling a little bit and now real life is going and that's a good thing, you know? Um, Or, you know, uh, bringing it back around to Metallica when you look at uh, like some kind of monster, I'm sure a lot of those things fresh out of rehab that Hetfield was white knuckling through yeah. with his lifestyle choices and, and, and so on. I'm sure a lot of that's mellowed to some extent, you know? Um, and I'm not saying, like, he's drinking. Of course he's not. But, I mean, you know, like, there's, there's uh, I mean, uh, you know, Ronnie Radke from Falling in Reverse, when, when he first was out of prison and going on tour, 
he insisted on like dry tours, you know, like mm-hmm. no drinking on the on his bus and no drinking around him or whatever. And it's like he doesn't tour that way anymore. In fact, he drinks now. But but you know, it's like there's that's that's a whole mellows, different thing. That's, you know? that's 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 a hard process. That that the sobriety thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a that's a different thing, especially when it's new and and. Uh, that's what I mean when it's I, when it's when I, it's new. I've been around. Yeah. I've been around people going through that. I've gone through different kind of had my own brushes with that whole lifestyle and thing and um it's tough man it's 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 tough when you're an addict or an alcoholic to um to try and fix that it's it's really really difficult and so i i understand when people do that i don't me too you know, yeah i don't know i don't know if it's necessary or if it's if it's if it works um but i i know if someone's really trying to stay sober and they're in a position where they are are able to control their environment, I can see where they might be. And they tell you when, when you know, the 12 step programs and the rehab, so you got to change your people, places and things like you got to change really everything um, for that to stick. And, you know, if someone's been so bad down that road that, that they felt like their life was in, in danger, then they'll do just about anything to stay away from that poison. You know what I mean? As they should. And I, and I, and I think, I, I guess the only point I was trying to make was that. But I know what you're saying in that. It's, eventually it's it mellows extreme approach. Eventually yeah. you have to realize that the world doesn't work or revolve around you and it's not going to work like that. And you have to have, you know, a, a different way of coping, a more subtle way of, you know. Some balance in there. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Um, anything that we should plug as a wrap up here? Yeah, no, I don't. There's nothing to announce. I mean, well, that does remind me of something actually that I've I've seen just you know in the blabbermouths and loudwires of the world, and just recently, um, have been members of Lamb of God talking about the need for a break. So mm. this is uh, you guys, you guys are taking a breath. I don't know that we're taking any more of a break than we ever take. You know what I mean? And and a couple of the guys tend to be, you know sometimes verbal about how they're ready for a break. But I think if you go back and see the end of every album cycle, that's pr- pretty much said every time. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't take a break. I take a break from, from touring. And in that sense, I'll be taking a break. We won't be playing shows very much, but um, when we stop a, a tour cycle, I go right into writing mode. So I'll be here writing songs and writing riffs and writing lyrics and then when we feel like we got to follow them, we'll go into the space and we'll start learning each other's songs and riffs and lyrics. And then we'll start putting songs. To, you know what I mean? So it's just the process never really stops, except, yes, we will be off the road for a minute. But that's nothing new. It's, it's just it's yeah. just we're coming in. We're coming in the back into that season where we're off the road for a little bit. Yeah. Well, speaking for the worldwide metal community, we all love and need and appreciate your riffs. So. Take as much time as you need to come up with more Mark Morton riffs. <laughs> well, um, thank you. I, yes. I tell people all the time I write so many terrible riffs, but I only let you guys, <laughs> I only let you guys hear the ones that are good. Someday, for the, for the most part, a couple of stinkers have, have maybe snuck through, but for the most part, you, you guys hear the good ones. Someday, someday <laughs> when you're dead and gone, there's going to be the Mark Morton uh, shit riff uh, throwaway oh, throwaway we, collection. <laughs> funny you say that because we had a song and i won't say which one it was that um we always come up with these ridiculous titles for our songs before they have real real yeah. uh, finals and there was a song a working title on the last album and it was called shit riff symphony <laughs> uh well there's a there's a throwdown song uh, i might have told you this before actually i feel like we might have talked about this once um there's a throwdown song where the working title was shithead riff 
because there was a shithead riff in there. And <laughs> and uh and the and the uh on the actual record, it's not in the lyric sheet and it's kind of unintelligible, but right before that riff kicks in, Dave yells shithead riff. Brian, thanks for your time, man. This is cool. Thank you, man. Um and you were uh, you were on my wish list of guests when I when I came up with the idea for this podcast in the first place, so Cool. I hope I, I hope I held up. Checking you off the list. No, this was this <laughs> no. was this was great for sure. Thanks, brother. All right, man. Hit me up. We'll, we'll stay in touch. We'll do. Hey, if you haven't left a five star rating and a nice little review of Speak and Destroy in the iTunes Store, I'm gonna go ahead and say that you're a poser. I mean, what would Papa Head say? I, actually, I don't know what Papa would say, but I'll tell you what I would say. Please, please leave a five-star rating and a nice review. Because the thing is, the more five-star ratings and nice reviews that we have in the iTunes store, the more people will discover this podcast and get to share and all of these cool conversations. And remember, when we get to 100 reviews in the iTunes store, we're going to be giving away one of the collector's edition box sets of Kill 'Em All, which has a hardcover book, a gazillion pieces of vinyl and CDs and memorabilia, and it's ridiculous. I could spend an entire podcast episode talking about everything in it, and hey, maybe we will someday, because they just announced the Master of Puppets box, which is Metallica keeping true on their promise to reissue their entire catalog now that they have the rights to all of the master recordings. They're opening up the vaults, and what gets more and more exciting is that they have more and more material in the vaults the further into this process we get because the newer the records are but the kill them all box set is nothing to sneeze at it's pretty awesome and we're gonna pick one of the reviewers at random once we reach 100 and give this kill them all collector's box set to he or she or however the person identifies yay you can find me on twitter at ryan downing on instagram at superhero hq you can find speak and destroy on facebook on Instagram and on Twitter as well. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downing.